Inside Media's Data-Driven Future, and Here's How Advertisers Ignore Data. This is episode 62, the All Data All the Time episode of Media Unplugged, right, Tom? Excellent, excellent. The <laughs> podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, this episode of Media Unplugged, as the last one, is brought to you by Stack Adapt. Stack Adapt is an omnichannel digital advertising platform that helps brands accelerate customer acquisition. If you're an agency or a brand, the biggest challenge you have is capturing attention, right? Well, Stack Adapt helps you find audiences that are reading about relevant topics or competing products before they search for them. That means you reach potential customers faster and more efficiently. It's simple technology that works. Visit stackadapt.com and request an invite today. Inside media's data-driven future, Tom. Talk to me. Tell this me what it's all about. <laughs> this is from our friend Shelly Palmer, a really smart guy, by the way, Shelly. You've had experiences with him before, yep, right? Yep, no, I like him. Yep. Really, really smart uh, digital technology guy. And the piece is in a, 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 a publication called Strategy and Business, and the article is Media's Data-Driven Future. And Shelly just kind of, it's all, it's Q&A with Shelly. Um, and I had trouble finding anything I, dis- I did not agree with in this. Well, then it's over then. We it have nothing to talk about. It kind of is, yeah. <laughs> Today's the slowest rate of technological change you will ever experience in your lifetime, he wrote. And uh, that already had my head spinning just with that. Um, he kind of summed up where the uh, media companies are to be a successful media company. You either have immense scale or you need to be tiny, flexible, and independent. Anything in the middle, he said, is going to get bought. And if it's going to get bought, it's probably going to get bought less for its soon-to-be-successful idea, which may not be successful so soon, but really for its people. The, ta- the talent. Yeah, right. the talent who are able to be absorbed into you know the Hooli-like conglomerate that is... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that name, Huli. There are only three business models for media, he writes, which um, certainly we know already. I pay, you pay, or someone else pays. That's not new. Um, he goes on to comment, and this is something we complain about all the time. Why isn't this being picked up and used more efficiently by the media ecosystem? He talks about the cross-purposes of the three major publicly traded entities in the advertising-supported media model, ad agencies, media entities, and brands. Each has a different way of creating shareholder value. Agencies want to make money. Media companies want to get the highest... Well, they all want to make money. Media companies want to get the highest possible price for each impression, and brands need to drive velocity. These three goals are not in concert with one another. What do you think about that, Tom? Well, they've always been in concert. It's the internet that's making them not in concert anymore. <laughs> um, I mean, I just read that Procter & Gamble is planning to save $2 billion in marketing investment over the next five years. And I'm telling you, the majority of that savings will come from media spending. You know, I know where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, if you're not going to change, you're going to be changed by someone, Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what's going on. The brands are realizing that the old model, you know, the mass marketing capture eyeballs model, is just it's just not working. It's it's running out and the effectiveness of it. Um, but the thing is, is it's kind of it seemed monotonous to me to keep hearing this. I'm going to tell you, eleven years ago, eleven mm-hmm. years, I gave a talk at the Four A's conference, mm-hmm. and 
I, I, so I said, listen, didn't I say this 11 years ago? So I dug up an online article. <laughs> listen, I dug up an online article that I wrote soon after uh-huh. to expand on the points I gave in the talk, right? Now, listen to, listen to a few of these lines. This yeah. was 11 years ago. I was joking around with the, with the headline, right? And I said, uh, come gather around marketers wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and you're going to drench to the bone if you don't, you know. So the whole Zimmerman thing, mm-hmm. right? The Dylan thing. Mm-hmm. And then I said, how does it feel to be on your own with no direction home? How does it feel to have consumers in charge of what, how, and when they watch, read, listen, and click? Mm-hmm. Then I wrote, the media landscape is splintered into a plethora of platforms. Sophisticated consumers are spending less time with traditional media, and the few marketing messages consumers do receive are suspect at best. I'm, we were all <laughs> saying this stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this article and I'm saying, oh my goodness, we're, we're still saying the same thing. Think of how many shares that piece would get if you published it again today. I should publish it today. <laughs> Just people, publish people, it every people, year. No, no, I should take it off. It's in on marketing profs. I should take it off and publish it as new. People will say this guy's brilliant. That's right, because nobody reads marketing <laughs> profs anymore. So you might as well, you might as well go rogue with it. Oh man, I, it just kills me. Everyone knows that this has been happening, but mm-hmm. what they're doing, Mark, I'm telling you, is they're not being proactive. They're waiting to be pushed. Which entity are you talking about in the ecosystem now? All of them. All of them. That's the point, right? It's the consumers are pushing the brands, the brands are pushing media, media's pushing, everybody's pushing the advertising agencies. It's so nobody wants to step out and ruin what they have, blow it up or lose any kind of revenue or anything. So we'll wait until the pain gets really bad. But and then we'll go in for surgery. Well, first of all, that is, after all, human nature, number one. Of course it is. Secondly, I mean, if there were easier answers or less painful answers, then people would move more quickly, don't you think? No, why? Um, Look at it. Let, let's, say that, let's say that this whole data-driven future is the future. Yeah. Right? And if that's the answer, then why isn't it being done? Well, um, the answer is in this article to some degree. Uh, We're going to talk about it also on the next piece, but um, with each element in the ecosystem being at cross-purposes with regard to their incentives, that doesn't help. With the fact that consumers, he he points out, Shelley points out in the piece, consumers don't care about any of this. They want what they want. They want it free. They want it on simple interoperable platforms, which is great. And every publisher, I mean, Facebook is in business to subvert simple interoperable platforms. Not simple. Well, they all are. They don't want you to go away to no, somewhere nobody else, wants right? you to go away. So that's going to be a complicating factor because it's going to that's gonna, that's going to create an obstacle to giving the consumer what he or she wants at any given point in time because the incentives are aligned differently. This is all about incentives. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. What's the quote that flies around the internet that says, if your job depends on not understanding something, then you don't? <laughs> something like that, right? <laughs> so, you know, why, why, do you, why do you want something that may, that may put you out of a job? That's right. <laughs> and even, even when we think about startups and, you know, this, this, this dynamic marketplace of, of, of disruptive startups, Shelley says the financial community would continue to make a fortune financially engineering startups and taking them public. That kind of profit-making is not always equally accretive to all of the shareholders, and it does not usually require a sustainable business to emerge. <laughs> mm. Really? Yeah, exactly. 
And then he goes on to say, look, let's talk about search. A search on Amazon is more valuable to many advertisers than a search on Google because consumers are more likely to buy there. Consumers have been trained. If you want to buy something, go to Amazon first, look it over, and add to cart. Why in the world would you want to just Google something when you could find what you want, read the description, and buy it all in the, you know, with a minimum of clicks, right? You know, we've talked about this. I don't think people understand the advertising giant that Amazon can become mm -hmm. very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's because, it, again, it's about data, right? It's about consumer behavior. They just released an Alexa uh, or Echo. Oh, shoot. Alexa just turned on. They just released, <laughs> an, they just released an Echo version that has a camera in it. Have you heard about this yes, thing? Yes. Yeah, so, so now they're going to look at your clothing in this camera and tell you, ah, you should, maybe you should try this outfit and send you a link to some clothing mm -hmm. on Amazon, mm -hmm. you know? So now it's, I don't even have to think about where am I going to go shopping? You know, I've got a camera telling me that what I should be wearing. That's it's crazy. Right. Yeah, no, it is. And it's, it is, it, it, he who has the mastery of the data has the upper hand. Um, and Shelley talks about that too. He has a great... Um, Great anecdote, he says. How do we increase sales is not a data-driven question. It may sound like one, but it isn't. A better question from a marketer that has access to purpose-built data management platform might be, what's the last day of the year that I can sell a full-price barbecue grill at the Home Depot in Danbury, Connecticut? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. To answer it, you would use a variety of data, parking lot density, same store sales, predicted weather patterns, inventory levels, and so on. The right answer can significantly increase margins. You could save on advertising. You could save by shipping unsold units to stores in warmer climates. If you really knew that these grills had to get moved, you could put them on a mostly empty truck headed to another location. You could run a sale. There are a million things you could do if you ask the right question of the data sets. Now, Tom, is this how P&G is going to save $2 billion? Well, see, that's different because a lot of that is this is he's talking about at retail. Yes, because because and and, and I and I read this years ago, and I used to do it like at parties. I would ask people a joke. I'd say, "Look, uh, Walmart has data of the pro the number one selling product in their stores where a tornado or a hurricane is mm -hmm. pro projected to come through." Mm -hmm. And people say, uh, "Batteries." I said, "No, water." No, you know what it is? What pop tarts? <laughs> So now why? I have no idea. I'm sure somebody can figure that out. But so that helps. It's six meals in one box. That's an easy answer. <laughs> That's what it is. But see, that helps Walmart. I'm trying mm -hmm. to figure out soap and laundry detergent, mm -hmm. things like that, what the data is going to help Procter & Gamble do if they're not selling this stuff online, well, then, Tom, if they can't get in someone's face. Then how are they saving that money? That. Uh, yeah, probably by um, squeezing suppliers. <laughs> I, I don't know. This, they're probably going to cut down the number of agencies and, and you know media buyers. And, wow. And then they're going to go after them and they're going to say, look, we're going to start paying you uh, X amount and then pay for performance. So, so it's, a mar it's a margin game and a performance game. Oh, absolutely, because margins are the name of the game for them right now. I mean, it's earnings that they have to figure out how to increase. And they can do that through sales, but that hasn't proven to be working out. Yeah, that's a tough... That's a, it's, always, <laughs> right? it's always tougher to get people to buy things, isn't it? Exactly right. <laughs> so Shelley goes on to talk about AI, which is interesting, and he makes some really interesting points about... Uh, I thought at one point 
he was kidding with one comment that he made. Uh, he was asked, how will AI affect people in media enterprises, particularly creative people? And he said, that's a loaded question. If you can have artificial intelligence, you can probably have artificial creativity. In oh, many boy. ways, it would be indistinguishable from average human creativity. Now, I thought, okay, well, that's a joke. <laughs> Turns out he wasn't joking. No, he's not joking. He actually meant that. And he, he referenced uh, a scene in, um, uh, the, um, in the movie, uh, which movie was it? Um, uh, was it AI? What was it? What was the movie he mentioned? Um, uh, where um, Will Smith is talking to uh, um, oh, I know a robot. iRobot. Yeah, yeah, iRobot. And he's talking to the robot, and the ro and he asks the robot if the robot can conduct a symphony, and the robot says, "No." Can you? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's a good point. It is a good point. Now and then, finally, and this is the way Shelley rapped poetically. Um, you make it sound like the most important thing, the making of content will not change that much at all in the future. And here's what Shelley says. There's a 40,800-year-old cave painting in El Castillo, Spain, that's said to be one of the oldest known. The artist created that content for one purpose and one purpose only, to be seen. The artist felt something or needed to explain something and created the work to communicate it. Today, a television commercial is there to be seen, a book is to be read, a song is to be heard. If you don't have a point to get across, you don't need the TV, the printing press or a stream on the internet. All, and if you, uh, if you do have something powerful to say, your job is to get it across no matter what technology you use or business model you work under. That hasn't changed and it probably never will. Yeah. Look, <laughs> things are changing. That's, the th that's what people don't understand is that things are changing. People are buying bulk products, you know, things like toilet paper, through Amazon now, yeah. yeah, you know, and they didn't think that would happen. No, they didn't. But in fact, one anecdote about that, um, I was talking to someone who's trying to do a, a deal with Amazon for some um, uh, video content mm. and his agent kind of poo-pooed it. He said, uh, do you know how Amazon makes its money? And the guy said, no. And he said, toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be plastic, remember? Yeah, that's right, plastics. Uh, you are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Masecker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, here's how digital, here's how advertisers ignore data. This was an interesting piece that you sent along from a guy named Brian Miller uh, in uh, The Drum. Uh, Brian is the co-founder of the Emotional Intelligence Agency, and he had taken a long trip away from the advertising industry. He said the last time he was in the industry, George W. Bush was president. And he, uh, he kind of joked that uh, tweets were something you heard in the park, and so was Yahoo, as a matter of fact, in those days. So he went back into the ad industry. He was interested in the algorithms that predict consumer behavior, and he said, wow, you know, you can crunch all this data in real time on any viewer of any ad. You could do some amazing things. Agency must, agencies must be all over it, he said. And then he said his own on online experience suggested maybe it wasn't so. <laughs> yeah. He would say the same ad for one product followed him for an entire week, whether he was on Facebook, chatting with friends, on yeah. Wired, reading about technology, or on Twitter, where he screams into the abyss. Um, all that data about who I was, what I was doing, what platform I was on, none of it was affecting the ad. So he went and talked to his friends in programmatic advertising. And they told him that most ad agencies were not interested in the data. Instead, <laughs> quote, they were just tossing stills from print and TV campaigns over the fence and asking the media companies to make them work online. 
Meanwhile, the programmatic guys say, we can tell you 5,000 things about a single uh, page view, but the agencies aren't using any of it. So with that, he thought, well, you know, maybe 5,000 is, is, is too much. <laughs> he said, my vast experience has taught me that 5,000 results are as good as none. Two are too few, four to six, that I can work with. <laughs> so um, uh, his point was that, you know, when you're just focusing on one thing, he, he actually went to uh, some agencies and he asked for their briefing form, a blank briefing form. And what he got back, he said, were the same questions you could have seen on a briefing form from the 90s. I know. Um, you know, what's the brand's tone of voice? What's the most compelling message, et cetera? And he said, back then, you know, there were too few outlets to bore you with the same message repeated. But yep. now it's tremendously repetitive. Um, he goes on to say, there are brands that are thriving online, both big and small. Here's the, here's the key. They've realized that it's more important to be multifaceted than monotonous, to be surprising than consistent. Um, here's the great line. Great online content. Uh, let's see, wait a minute. He said, Nike, Root Health Cereals, Victoria's Secret, even Victoria Beckham have all discovered a way to thrive online, one that's millions of miles away from the USP or, quote, brutal simplicity of thought. They're all multifaceted personalities and they adapt their tone of voice to their audience's mood. Data allows you to do that if you use it intelligently. Well, see, that's powerful what he's saying, yeah. isn't it? Think about it what is. he's saying. If, I, if we can see what consumers are doing and what they're clicking on and what they're reading and their reactions, if we can find out their sentiments and we can tailor our message to match the sentiments, that's what human beings do all the time, right? Right. If we see somebody sad, we don't stop laughing and, and, and we ask them, what's wrong? <laughs> yeah, and, and to some degree, it's about the context of the platform in which your message lives, right? Oh, he, absolutely. He that points, should tell you a lot. He points out that Taco Bell, a chain that, that's gone from being dubbed Taco Hell five years ago to Gen Z's default hangout. Its social media takes a lot of credit for it. It's beautiful on Instagram bitchy on Twitter, inspiring on its website, <laughs> and its $40,000 taco bot has already taken 10 million in orders on Slack. See? That's a uh, different it, message in different places, a different tone, a different uh, voice, a different everything. Yeah, and he said, what did he find? He found out through his research that great content is one of four things. Right. Funny, useful, beautiful, or inspiring. If and, you're, and you have to make it funny in in the way that the people that you're trying to appeal to see funny. And the place where they want funny, right? Exactly, and where they want funny. Yeah, it's all those four things. So he, and the, those, are, those are the, if you're taking notes at home, funny, inspiring, useful, beautiful are the four uh, executions. And he basically said they need to be all of the above, not just one of the above. Right. It's just you have to be it in the right place at the right time. Great online content is either funny, useful, beautiful, or inspiring. Great online brands do all four of those things. Victoria's Secret is hilarious on Instagram. Root Health is angry and ranty on YouTube. They bring surprise instead of consistency and match their tone to the platform rather than expect their audience to change emotional gear. Really interesting, I thought. No, I think it's, it's, it's powerful, but it only is enabled by online data. I mean, you would think that people would know the difference because you don't want to be putting ads on television shows that are emotionally disconnected from the show, but they do it all the time. 
That's true. And and the same is true in podcasts, by the way. I mean, I, I know the, the, the podcast that I do, I'm asked to do spots in there. I mean, I'm doing a promo for a different podcast that is tonally entirely different from the one that I do. And you could ask, well, is this the place people want that message? But then you have to say, well, wait a minute. People who use podcasts are very often people who use other podcasts. So isn't this exactly the right um, context for this message, even though the content, it doesn't track with what my show's about. That's interesting. Maybe you should reach out to this guy and ask him. <laughs> uh, before Ransom Raves, I want to remind you this episode of Media Unplugged is brought to you by Stack Adapt. Stack Adapt is an omnichannel digital advertising platform that helps brands accelerate customer acquisition. Stack Adapt helps you find audiences that are reading about relevant topics or competing products before they search for them. That means you reach potential customers faster and more efficiently. Please support Media Unplugged by visiting stackadapt.com and requesting an invite today. Tom, rants, raves, what have you this week? Rants and raves. I think I'll stay on topic and do a, a, like a quick advertising rant, specifically about how the message is communicated. So I think based on the culture we live in, at least here in North America, advertisers should choose one of two options and be really, really good at it. Overt messaging or the suspension of disbelief. And so let me, let me explain what I mean by that. And, and again, if you, whichever one you pick, and you can pick both, be really good at it. So for example, on the over it side, if you have a clear, unique value proposition, like uh, you'll get a great night's sleep if you buy this pillow, mm -hmm. then use mass media, use data and analytics, get that ad, that message in front of the right people at the right time with the right promotion, give them validation, through science, reviews, whatever other crazy reasons may compel them to rationalize the purchase decision. Kind of simple, right? It sounds really simple. And people don't even do that because a lot of people can't figure out what their unique value proposition really is. Right. And they can't appeal to something that people really want, like a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. That's that one. The second one is a little bit more nuanced, the suspension of disbelief route. What you're trying to do there is you're trying to weave your brand into a story where people will suspend their, basically their critical faculties and believe the unbelievable. Like, oh, Jesus, that toothpaste brand will make beautiful women just flock to me, right? Mm -hmm. Let me give you a couple cases in point. The other night, I watched an episode of the new season of Better Call Saul. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I watched an episode of Designated Survivor. So... On Better Call Saul, the protagonist, Jimmy McGill, he's hiding out as an employee at a Cinnabon in, in like a mall. The writers and the director show him making these like delicious pastries. It's mm -hmm. beautifully shot, it's visceral, mm -hmm. feels real. And Cinnabon created some special promotions linked to that episode. Mm -hmm. I would call that perfect, seamless suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. Now, compare that with another great show I tuned into, Designated Survivor. In this week's episode, I'm watching this. The FBI agent, she has a confrontation with a potential suspect. After he tells her, call my lawyer, and gets in his car and drives away, now they're outdoors and it's sunny, she pulls out her smartphone to start her Ford car, mm -hmm. which is six steps away from her. <laughs> and I'm watching this thing and I'm saying... I asked my wife, I said, what the hell just happened here? 
Because you could even see like the Ford logo in the car. Of course. Light up on the screen. So that was terrible. You could see straight through the cell. It made no sense. It was bad. Wow. As soon as the thinking mind turns on with a big, huh? Mm. For example, you give someone a can of Pepsi, it will bring unity, peace, and understanding to Black Lives Matter's protests, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as you go, huh? <laughs> Every, the magic ends. But if you connect with culture in the correct way, it can spread like wildfire because mm -hmm. others will spread it for you mm -hmm. and in a good way. Like, have you seen Heineken's recent ad uh, targeting social awareness called Worlds Apart? No. Take a look at it. It's racking up millions of views on YouTube. And I even heard someone on a network morning show say that every parent should show the Heineken ad to their children. Wow. Right? So look, either be overt, in people's face, right place, right time, right promotion, or use the subtle suspension of disbelief. Whatever you choose, learn how to do it well. That's a really interesting um, way of approaching, and I think that may play into one of the two items I have for you. Actually, maybe both of the items I have for you. Wow. I have is, two. We're connecting here. Yeah, this is... Uh, have you heard of the new uh, hair care product line called Evaus? No. What is it? Uh, Evaus. E-V-A-U-S is the no, name of it. I haven't. Well, um, the folks behind this new line decided to share it with a bunch of uh, fashion influencers, millennials, influencers. And then they videotaped their reactions using it. Of course, they loved it. They thought it was fantastic. And, you know, another great high-priced uh, line for hair care. And then they gave them a box of the product that they could open up. And they just wanted to get a shot of them opening the box. And they opened the box. And it reveals the product with a different label. And this label has Evaus backwards, which is suave. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> here... All these 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 millennials had thought that they were evaluating a high-priced premium hair care product with fancy packaging and uh, come to find out that what they were using um, all that time over those 10 days was repackaged suave. And Did that make them happy? <laughs> that It's funny you mention that because that's the point of my rant rave, okay? <laughs> Because the thinking is, the thinking, okay, on behalf, you're suave, okay? Your thinking yeah. is, my research shows that millennials, and why you would pick on millennials, I think this is true of any age group, not purely right. millennials. Millennials feel there's more value in higher priced hair care products. And if you use a less expensive hair care product, it's just not as good. So they've got to go with the better stuff. So then they create this, this test where they, you know, fool them into thinking Oh boy. And then they open up the box, they see the suave, and then they hold it up and they're smiling at the camera. Wow, I can't believe you fooled me. Tom, the expressions on these girls' faces <laughs> was not, wow, you've really enlightened me about a great bargain. I can get even better product at a lower price. This is fabulous. I can be a better, more attractive person now because I'm paying less. No, Tom, that's not what the expression said. The expression said, oh, crap. <laughs> Mark. You mean to tell me? Perfect. Um, I've, you've made me use Suave products for the past 10 days, and now you're actually video recording me, a fashion icon and influencer? 
yeah. uh, extolling the virtues of suave. I am humiliated beyond words. That's what the video said. It was a perfect example of the words not matching the pictures. Look, Mark, they did, I told you, you need to choose one. Either you choose overt and obvious, right. which is this will shampoo your hair for $2, or the suspension of disbelief. What they did is they tried the suspension of disbelief and right. then said, ha-ha, we fooled you. Now let's be overt. Yeah, you know what it really made me wonder as I watched um, the video? <laughs> I said, why, didn't, why don't they just put a brand called Evaus into the marketplace at a premium price? <laughs> because they were trying to be a clever promotion. This was this was a promotion, right? Yes, of course. Yeah, no, it was a big mistake. I, I saw the same <laughs> thing happen to uh, Fruit of the Loom Underwear did the same thing, where they created some store, this high-end store, and brought all mm -hmm. these models in to check out this underwear. They rebranded it to Le Fruit or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it was the same reaction. I can't believe that's Fruit of the Loom. <laughs> I mean, they they uh, it's unbelievable. They actually created a spot which uh, communicates that the fashion influencers you follow and believe in are suddenly fooled into being worth less. I mean, they are literally worth less. And right, what do you think that does to their credibility? Of course, that's what you can see it going through their eyes. You can see the expression on their face. It's oh unbelievable. You've got to look this up. It's just I'm looking it up. unbelievable because the the, the nonverbals uh, tell the story <laughs> and how they could miss those nonverbals in their you know in their uh, uh, excitement, enthusiasm about yeah, the success exactly. of the campaign is just beyond me. The second thing I have to mention that's kind of vaguely related to that and. I think this might be, um, I don't know if this is, this This also is kind of violation of suspension of disbelief. <laughs> but you know, of course, that Disney, and it was only a matter of time before this happens, Disneyland in Disney World are going to be introducing a new land, um, I believe, next year. You knew about this, right? And Where that, is it? That new land is called Star Wars Land. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep. This is the biggest thing to hit, you know, geek culture uh, in millennia. Right. Um, the idea that, and they're actually, they have a survey out that asks people if they would be willing to pay $900 or more for a two-night uh, stay uh, in Star Wars land, you know, for the full Star Wars role-playing experience. You go into the resort, you enter, and apparently you can't see any other, you know, non-native to Star Wars things once you enter. Um, if you stay in the hotel, they're going to have, you know, special uh, robots, personalized secret missions, flight training, starship exploration, lightsaber training, all hmm. things that you would expect from from uh, a Star Wars experience. And then uh, the, the writer and uh, Ed Mashable goes on to say, it sounds like there's only one thing in all this that could ruin the illusion that you're actually in a Star Wars movie, the guests themselves. <laughs> 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 Flip-flops, T-shirts, crying babies, and constant smartphone usage. That's hardly reflecting the Skywalker <laughs> saga. And I think that's so true. You know, anytime you do anything in one of these places, it's, it's, it's your neighbors around you. They said maybe they can get guests to change into special Star Warsy robes as part of the experience and maybe take photos for them so they can leave the phones behind. We're into it. <laughs> Otherwise, who knows? They could but, create a dress code. I mean, that's what high-end nightclubs do. Well, you know, I, the high-end nightclubs have another agenda. That's they, true. They sell alcohol. Those are the other. The, other than that, it's identical. <laughs> Tom. Uh, so That's you, right. The people at the bar look similar too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I guess the, the, the regular tourists would resemble the people in the cantina, so... That's, that's what uh, I mean. Uh, yeah, that at least is true. All that's, right. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show, but not, uh, you know, this episode in particular. No, not this one, no. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, <laughs> Google Play Music, and TV News Check. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments at hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the amazing producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at Jeff-Schmidt.com. For the incomparable Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. <laughs>